0: Barrett, thank you very much for coming on the podcast.
1: Jake, you're very welcome. I'm honored to uh, be among your guests.
0: It's uh, about time. I think we've been talking about this for a while, and I'm very interested in your experience with the oral histories here at Gilman. So maybe if we could talk about that a little bit, I think that's a good place to start.
1: Absolutely. I uh, have had a, a very rewarding public relations career, and the heart of it, Jake, was uh, spent as corporate spokesman for McCormick & Company from late 1982 until mid-2006. I took an early retirement uh, opportunity at that time. I was 57, qualifying for uh, full retirement, which was exceedingly fortunate, but I certainly had some more gas in the tank and wanted to find something else to do. And that process took a little while. Ultimately, with my classmate and old friend John Schmick in the headmaster's office, and Kate Radcliffe as our longtime director of development, uh, I was offered a chance to come back to Gilman, this time on the staff, as Alumni Special Events Coordinator in August of 2008. With the understanding that I would, in conjunction with the school archivist who at that time was Nancy Gilpin, revive Gilman's oral history program which had been in full swing I think in 1990 and 91 but, um, quiet since Hmm. and uh, i consider myself um, a gilman guy from day one having entered kindergarten at age five in 1954 and i've got i'm just as a little bit of background i'm part of a three generation gilman family my father the youngest of four brothers Who graduated from the school in 1931 34 37 and dad's class 1940 in addition uh, my son Alan is a member of the class of 03 and my nephew his first cousin Will Frew graduated in 06 so we care deeply about Gilman school and her people And this was an opportunity for me to capitalize on uh, a a nice announcing background and uh, my public relations experience, but above all, my deep uh, affection, true love for Gilman, and connect with people, in many cases, I knew. Mm-hmm. So, uh, either late 2008 or early 2009, I began, and Cesare has been an integral part of this program uh, and has really uh, contributed uh, big time in the professionalism, increasingly as we have continued to. Uh, sit down as you and I are doing right now and ask the men, and uh, in the case of Eva Turner, uh, the former head of the upper school, uh, talk about their, their Gilman careers with some personal anecdotes included. And I've always thought that my number one Responsibility is to make the interviewee comfortable. Typically, uh, it's been in a quiet space, whether it be here in the more recently in the podcast studio or in uh, the Bowyer conference room in Cary Hall. That's where most of them have been done. And get out the tape recorder, make sure it's quiet, sit down, and hopefully. Make them uh, comfortable as i said and and interested in talking about what Gilman has meant to them, and I try to bring in some personal anecdotes about their uh lives and careers as well
0: so I know you have the uh background in announcing and public relations when you were getting this off the ground um In 2008, you said, 2008, around that time. uh, Did you have any experience before with interviewing, or is that just something that you were getting into um, based on your previous experience with those other two, I guess, uh, skills that you had?
1: I can't really claim, Jake, to have had a lot of experience conducting interviews, but Going back to um, my days as a Dartmouth undergraduate, I've worked for a very uh, uh, fine student radio station at Dartmouth and uh, did a little bit of work at uh, WTTR in Westminster after graduation. I believe that was the summer of uh, 71. And I've been a basketball public address announcer um, in the past for 28 consecutive years, all of which makes my time at the microphone comfortable Mm -hmm. and enjoyable. So we just change direction a little bit, have some questions prepared, which guide me, but as I stress to uh, the subject of the interview, it's his or her conversation to take me wherever he or she wants to go Uh, if I ask something that the subject would prefer not to address and that hasn't been the case just say so or put up a stop sign Um,
0: do you usually um, enter these oral histories kind of with a with a set of questions that you want to get to or is it more conversational kind of like the this podcast
1: there are definite questions that I want to have addressed uh, and I want to demonstrate that I have come prepared, that I'm not here at the microphone winging it, that I've given thought to what I think is appropriate. I want the focus, of course, to be on the Gilman part mm-hmm. of the subject's background. I've My first one was with... Uh, Mr. Finney and he had been my faculty advisor 7th through 12th grades and then uh, Nick Schloeder, senior. Um, Two giants if there ever were uh, as far as a couple generations of Gilman students are are concerned. That was good foundation. Um, I knew both men very well. They knew me very well, and in the case of Mr. Finney, it took two conversations to cover what was on the on the docket. but um, I feel it's important to provide some direction and incorporate into the questions both the Gilman's side, the personal side, what did you do before you came here? Did you ever think about leaving? Um, How about a few words about your family? What's on your bucket list Mm. once you you retire? So that there, there is a bond that gets stronger as the conversation unfolds. And then I want that person to enjoy it. This is not 60 minutes, it's um, not an interrogation. I I wanna see a smile. Every once in a while I'll see the eyes water a little bit as the person gets into some subject matter that um, has has been held within for a long time or just a good emotion. So that's my approach and uh, I've, I've had some very rewarding um, interviews uh, over these nearly 14 years.
0: How long are those conversations usually and um, where do they go after they're recorded? Do they just go into the archives? Have you ever thought of recording the or, or videotaping the conversations at all or is it always kind of the, the audio version?
1: It's been the audio version. There has been um, an occasional question about the feasibility of doing video. I guess ideally that uh, would have some advantages. On the other hand, I don't think we want the subjects to be self-conscious and worry about um, the, the video aspect, even though once you start talking, you forget what the technology is and just get engrossed in the subject matter. When the conversation concludes, Um, Cesare uh, makes sure that we've gotten it and that the quality is good. It is then forwarded by email um, up to a professional transcriber in New England uh, with whom I have worked since I began the, the revival of this program, though I've never met her. Her name is Casey Calver. And she worked at Johns Hopkins. And she does a very fine job. And she'll need uh, a number of weeks uh, because she's employed and and has uh, somewhat limited time. But she's delivered time after time. And we agree upon uh, the the target date. If she needs more, that's fine. There's no need to exert any pressure here. She is compensated by uh, an hourly rate, and she is a vital uh, component of the success and continuity of this program. She'll turn it around, send it back to me. I get the transcript and her invoice for that particular conversation. I will edit it, and then it goes ultimately to Joanna Schein, who will uh, keep it in the archives.
0: So you've spoken with some of the all-time greatest uh, and most influential figures in Gilman's history through this oral histories project. Um, What would you say is the most rewarding aspect of of that undertaking when you first started out and through the years of doing it? What, what is the most rewarding part of the oral histories to you?
1: I know I've gained confidence throughout the process that I have learned what works for me and what the subjects seem to enjoy. Perhaps the most gratifying is knowing that The person on the other side with the microphone has enjoyed it as well, has been able to talk at length, typically for an hour, Mm -hmm. sometimes 90 minutes. Don't want it to get stale. And I'd rather have it conclude with the person up and in the midst of enjoying it, when we've reached a natural conclusion than to be struggling to get to the finish line. And that's my responsibility, to keep things moving. So I, I'll i say, I'll use a baseball term saying, um, well, we're rounding third and heading for home here to let the person know the end is in, in sight. Um, I could name um, a number of subjects uh, who've been particularly memorable, and one of them is The most recent one um, we did, which was with Johnny Foreman. And I was looking forward to that and talked to him after he announced his upcoming retirement, the end of this school year. And he came up to my office and to the desk and we spent a few minutes and I said, "Uh, you have uh, an important contribution to make to this program. You have done very important work for this school and I think the school archives should should have uh, this recorded for the future and we sat down here in November and we did get close to an hour and a half and uh, I I took him uh, to a couple of uncomfortable areas intentionally. Um, and I led into it, so it was no surprise. But for a moment or two, uh, I mean the, the aspect of, of being a black administrator here on the campus. And he had spent a year at Severn School after 10 years in the Baltimore City um, school system. And this was a big change for him. And he was coming in to broaden Gilman's perspective on equity and something that he has built steadily now since 1984. And I very much, I mean, I've liked and respected Johnny for years. Wanted him uh, comfortable sitting down as we are doing right now and getting into some of the past. And I asked him uh, about uh, what what amounted to being profiled um, by a policeman uh, within a short distance of of this campus Mm -hmm. after about five years here. And he paused before he uh, decided, and he began. And he got com- increasingly comfortable as he shared what that experience was like and had, how Mr. Finney, headmaster at the time, had come to find him that same day, having heard of what had happened and feeling so badly about it. The point of this is a, an oral history that has substance, uh, should accomplish more than just a recording between two people. It it should give the subject an opportunity to to explore, to disclose, to share, whatever it might be, both the personal and the professional. And when we finished I think his words were and I have the transcript at my desk um, wow that was fun
0: I know I was going to and, say and,
1: and, yeah. that, and that was one of the finest compliments I've received in 13 and a half years of doing this and going over the transcripts afterward and you can't help but strengthen um, a relationship whether it's work or combination of work and, and personal going through uh, the subject matter that we covered. And I'm very, I'm very proud of these conversations and having Cesare's professionalism to present it in a, a very uh, sound, uh, smooth uh, way helps the credibility of of this program oh that's for sure i want i want anybody we ask to participate in oral history to want to do it because i know if he or she accepts um we're off in the right direction to to begin with and i I look forward to them but i as i've shared i've got my questions Mm -hmm. we I don't have to get to all of them, but I want them close by just in case.
0: Yeah, I was going to say that I I really like it when after I do a podcast with someone they say it it was fun because I find it so interesting that, you know, talking about yourself and your time at Gilman and what you do turns out to be fun in the end and I think it's because when you're having these types of conversations you're exploring those meaningful moments and they're not always good moments like you said they're not always positive but they're your story they're impactful and they make you who you are and we've also we've had we've had crying and we've had laughter and it is it's fun it's kind of a roller coaster but um, I think at the end it's enjoyable and it's, it's like a, a, a mini version of your your time, your your life, your story, your legacy.
1: In addition, it's a reminder to me of the value of public speaking, which was started right here on this campus for me in the lower school as a real young boy when we would have to stand up in English class for, I don't know, two minutes and you're looking at your classmates and your teachers there and we hear of uh, individuals who really are uncomfortable speaking in public even something as intimate as uh, a small room with a handful of people. It doesn't come naturally to everybody. And one of the gifts I received from our school is early experience and standing on my two feet, looking at an audience, and delivering a message. And then it it was continued in the upper school. There was no middle school in in those years in the 60s where you had, as a junior, to write uh, a comprehensive uh, term paper in an English class, and that became the basis for your senior speech, which was not optional. We had in our class, I believe, class of 67, either 67 or 68 students. There were enough assemblies every morning. We called a chapel where every member would fit in during the school year. It was a big deal. You're talking to the entire upper school. Your parents, in many cases, are in the back of the auditorium, and you're talking for 10 to 12 minutes at 17 or 18 years of age, and not everybody is uh, in his comfort zone doing that. I remember as a 10th grader sitting um, and listening to a senior give his uh, senior speech, And he lost his place and his copy in front of him. And there was a long silence, 20 seconds, 30 at the most. We wondered, come on, Jack, find your place. He eventually did. He finished. And he got a very loud ovation for having kept his composure, found his place, and concluded. Training like that is hard to find. It's not available everywhere. I'm glad, certainly in retrospect, that we were required to do it. It pays dividends later on.
0: Now, Were you always a natural in front of people, or was it something that troubled you at, at times in... Um you developed through these classes and teachers and the experience of speaking in front of your classmates, or was it always pretty comfortable for you?
1: I would say, um, generally speaking, it's been pretty comfortable, and I'm grateful for that, and I'm grateful for what was required here. Uh, and, of course, the older one gets the... Uh, the more stringent the requirements are, there's an opportunity to participate in either the uh, Knicks or Areopagus debating clubs. I was president of the Knicks as a senior, and there was a uh, speech contest. Uh, this is all good stuff. Once we get out there, once we're not in the Gilman cocoon and we're in college and in working, Um, it's increasingly competitive. And another gift, and I stress this frequently, another gift of the Gilman education is that we learn something about competition. It's supposed to be healthy. It's supposed to be honorable. Whether it's in the classroom where we're graded and there's an honor system, or in athletics, whatever the sport might be, you better learn how to win with with some humility and grace and how to lose like a like a young guy, ultimately a man, because life can be hard, as we know, and we're going to encounter setbacks. And the sooner that becomes obvious in life, in whatever way, the healthier, I believe, your, your career is going to be.
0: Absolutely. And I think the public... Public speaking note: the The point about the importance of public speaking is so important. I don't I don't know if I really had much experience speaking in front of people until I started teaching and and started doing it every day, and then it became much more comfortable for me. But I think in school today, and I think Gilman does a good job with this, but but still, the senior speech is no longer a requirement for seniors here. I don't feel as if public speaking is as emphasized as maybe it should be because it gives you such an advantage, I think, in any business setting or anything that you do in the future, being comfortable in front of of people and uh, knowing how to appeal to them and knowing how to elicit some emotion or, or connect with a crowd. Absolutely.
1: And let's face it, whether we're young or part of senior society, there are occasions when we are practicing salesmanship pertaining to ourselves in whatever we do. The more comfortable we are in our own skin to make a point, hopefully calmly and with conviction and support evidence, the better it's likely to go. And We got started in an early age and that, that's valuable. And and if you're a candidate for uh, a position that you want, at any point and as we see, as we move through our careers, the stakes get higher and there's more riding on whether or not we land that position. Could be a promotion. Could be the difference between staying in the organization or deciding I've kinda hit my ceiling here, I better start looking elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, the ability to be persuasive with evidence and um, a smile and some personality to back it up yeah. makes, it, makes a difference.
0: It's probably the most important skill there is, I, I would say. Um. Do you remember what your senior speech was about when you were here?
1: Yes. It was about the Leopold Loeb murder case, two young guys in Chicago who tried to commit the perfect crime, and they didn't get away with it. They were defended by the famous Clarence Darrow. I um, wrote the the paper for um, Mr. Barker's class. Mr. Barker was uh, legendary. And he was as much a college professor as he was a Gilman school um, English teacher. And he filled my my paper with red ink. And <laughs> I believe I got an eighty. And his comment, and this was Mr. Barker to a T and and when uh, I lost my dad suddenly. Um years later, he sent me a beautiful note, but when you're in the in the eleventh grade and Mr. Barker's your teacher, um he expects you to write a certain way and uh, if you don't, he's going to point it out, and his red ink pointed it out. <laughs> I think the comment began if if this was being done by a ninth grader, it might be acceptable. Well, I was in the eleventh grade at that point. It was a learning experience, and that was the basis for my speech the we, following year.
0: You still chose the, the the paper to write the speech. It must have been an important topic to you, even well, though it, it covered. It,
1: it, it was, and the understanding was, yeah, yeah, you're going to give your uh, talk on on your paper. You as the basis for it.
0: Got gotcha. you. So were those chapels every morning when you were here, every every Mon- morning Monday, before school?
1: Monday through Friday.
0: Can you tell me a little bit more of, uh, and I think this is interesting for people to l- listen to, about what Gilman was like uh, just as a school and class-wise and athletic-wise and the ways in which it was different from it is today and the ways in which it is the same?
1: I would address that as uh, follows. Uh, my years here were 1954 to 67. Um, our class of 67 was the last all-white class. One of the, um, one of the gifts of the school that uh, I believe is important to mention is that through athletic competition, We traveled to other schools. We traveled to neutral venues, um, certainly for baseball. We were playing city schools. Um, We had interaction with um, black athletes. And there were four graduates in the class behind us, class of 68. Um, we had two black students on our varsity basketball team. That's clearly a dramatic um, difference from the way it is today, and it's far healthier today than it was then. Um, the the scope uh, of Gilman was not nearly as community oriented as it is today. I lived two blocks from here. I walked to school most of my years. How many Gilman students walk to school today? I can't imagine very many. And this is all healthy and there was um, a clear and strong effort over a sustained period of time to broaden the composition of the student body. And for some, this was a, this was a real challenge to, to be accepting. But as far as um, personal growth and an ability to get along with one's fellow man um, it was badly needed, and the school has benefited. And while certainly there's been push-pull in uh, recent times, uh, taking a, a real hard look at the whole subject of equity and inclusion with a uh, dramatic uh, increase in programming for virtually everybody. Um, yeah, and there, there's some discomfort involved as each individual has to deal, deal with this. So I, I would say that um, strikes me as probably the, the biggest change. That said, I believe that when you consider the Gilman Five, which we hear about on a regular basis, the honor system, um, being thoughtful, uh, hopefully, of, of others. And when you have people, there are going to be problems. There are going to be challenges. And this pandemic has, has been an enormous challenge uh, throughout society and around the world. Um, we, we've had plenty of challenges, which... Aren't concluded yet, right? Right here, and adjusted, and you learn to do things uh, a different way. I've always believed that Gilman uh, has has uh, has no peer in this community for its mission, and that's why families make sacrifices for their sons to, to come for both the immediate benefit and the long-term educational uh, goal that is um, is there for, for the taken. Uh, it's hard, but we have a lot to be proud of.
0: Can you talk a little bit about what it was like being here when Gilman was an all-white institution and then those first years when the first African-Americans were allowed to, to come to Gilman and what that was like just, just living through that and being a student here during that time?
1: Well, I, I don't want to make more of it than is the case. I, I, while there are undoubtedly some things that went on behind the scenes that I'm unaware of that may have been highly uh, uh, stressful. Um, and really have no evidence to back that up. I mean, we just tried to get along. Uh, were things uh, very inappropriate said? I would assume so at, at some point, but we're here in this um, traditional, uh, overwhelmingly white student body in the nice Roland Park um, neighborhood. And I guess it was something of a cocoon. So the, the movement in the 60s and thereafter to broaden our perspective was um, something that was just starting as we were finishing. And those were turbulent years, the 60s. And there was um, the Vietnam War. And I, I was uh, in, the, in the lottery. in in college so my number was 30 and numbers 1 through 195 were going to be subject to the draft and I wound up enlisting in the Maryland Army National Guard one week to the day after I received my college diploma and I wound up with a six-year military commitment Um, that was valuable that was I mean that was something that each of us had to um Reflect upon: are, are you going to enlist? Are you going to allow yourself to be drafted? Do you want nothing to do with it? And we'll take lengths to make sure that you don't have to have a, uh, a military component to to your life. It that that was it was I f- found it was um, a very challenging time in society. Not that we. Uh, haven't been going through that uh, since to uh, a certain extent but you just um, I I, I didn't think of uh, a a lot of black and white as a Gilman student Mm -hmm. I saw that there were four black students in the class behind us and two of them became teammates for basketball, and that was good. And um, it, it was it was overdue. It was healthy, um, but I, I didn't I didn't dwell uh, on that.
0: And that's the that's the thing about sports is um, when you are on a team with somebody, you don't really care,
1: and hopefully, you're colorblind.
0: Right, you are teammates, and and that's one of the things that I think. I've learned through playing sports and I think is so beneficial about sports is that yeah you have your your problems sometimes with your teammates but at the end of the day you're your teammates and you love each other and that's what a good team does and living through such a turbulent time uh, as the you know the late 60s and Gilman during that time and the changes that were happening I think to your point earlier the impact and influence of sports is so important um, just in the development of a young mind and and understanding that we're all the same. We're all in this together. We're Gilman graduates. We're friends. We're teammates. Um, and all of those differences are settled. Well said. Um, so I, I'm, I'm also pretty curious about just your experience in athletics at Gilman. We talk about basketball all the time and um, how – big part of basketball, big, how large a part of your life basketball is. Um, but if you could talk about just playing sports here at Gilman and kind of the influence of some of your coaches that you had while you were, while you were here.
1: Thank you. Uh, I'm a sports guy. There's no doubt about it. I've got a lot in my background. Uh, my, my two favorites throughout my life have been uh, baseball, and basketball, in in that order, and they're they're close. Um, I played JV football as uh, a ninth grader. There were a handful of us who who made that team, and um, we did. I wasn't terribly good. I was a, a tailback in the old single wing before Gilman converted to the T formation, and uh, we had a a, a struggling. Fall in 1963, and won one, lost five, and tied two. Pretty uh, forgettable. And the following August, at the start of two-a-days for the varsity, uh, I had a decision to make, which was, uh, did I want to continue? So I went to Mr. Finney, one-on-one, Now, uh, formidable, um, beloved, especially as the years went on, uh, very positive, enthusiastic. And I said, Mr. Finney, um, I'm really struggling to determine whether uh, I should continue playing football. I didn't enjoy it all that much last year on the JV. And I appreciate your opinion as my advisor, not as football coach. And he shook his head like he did. So energetically, he was struggling with his answer, and he just looked at me and said, I can't do that, because he was speaking as a football coach. Well, I decided to stop. And I haven't um, regretted um, much of anything about my Gilman career And I didn't regret uh, discontinuing football. It's a fabulous game. I, I love football. But I just didn't want to play. And I should have played soccer. That's what I should have done in the fall. But soccer was very young in its development at Gilman. So I ran cross country. And I guess it helped my conditioning for basketball. I played two years of JV basketball. We won the private school league with uh, Joe Carroll, a wonderful um, man, a uh, business executive, and, and coach who had played uh, at Georgetown and was quite a three-sport athlete. And then I made the varsity 11th grade. The varsity had, was in the process of winning three private school league championships in four years. And we uh, we finished second to Severn, which had uh, at least two uh, very talented post grad players on their on their team. Just couldn't couldn't beat them. And then came back and uh, won the league title uh, our senior year. And we had Sherm Bristow and Denny Malone as our guards. And Coach Schloter called them the best. Back court in Baltimore and um, both of them went on to play. Uh, Denny played on an undefeated freshman team at Penn when they were a powerhouse and uh, Digger Phelps uh, was his coach before he wound up going to Notre Dame and Sherm uh, played freshman uh, basketball at Princeton when they were loaded, and he got caught in a coaching change between freshman and sophomore year and didn't make the varsity when some of the varsity players told the coach, we want Bristow on the the team. And I've talked, I did an oral history with Sherman, got into it uh, uh, very memorably with with him. So the uh, the basketball was... uh, in a very good position with Nick Schloeder at the helm of the program. And um, baseball, uh, we struggled. And one of the joys of, um, of my recent years here has been the dramatic improvement of Gilman baseball under head coach Larry Sheets and his assistants. And I never dreamed that... Gilman Baseball could win uh, an A-conference title, and his teams have done it twice. 2010, his first year, and this past spring. And made the finals, I think, three other times. So for a generation, if not more, Gilman um, Baseball had, would have an occasional good competitive team and then the kids would graduate and it was starting all over again. Well, we now have a program which has raised some eyebrows and Gilman is, has gained um, recognition for its uh, much improved program now that has been sustained in, into the start of a second decade. and. I'm from a baseball family and i'm I'm proud to say if I may use this form to do it um, there there are uh, four members of the family who uh, won the Alumni baseball cup um, an uncle in class of 40 uh, 34 my father in class of 40 um, my son in class of 03 with two other classmates and yours truly in 67. And this can be verified with Tim Holley. I don't know of any other varsity sport at the school where four members of the same family have won the prize for that particular sport over over time. And uh, the, the, uh, the great thrill... Um, of of seeing the new baseball field named for my father in uh, 2016 it's one of the the top uh, highlights of of my life and I'm not hesitant to say that we just lost um, our mother um, about three weeks ago at 94 and she was very much a part of that dedication ceremony in late April of 2016 and called it one of the best days of her life And I included that in in my eulogy at her memorial service. So it's been, Jake, it's been baseball and basketball. And the school has added multiple sports since we were students here. And I'm not sure I can name them all. Volleyball, squash, swimming. And perhaps several others I'm forgetting. There, There are 16 varsity sports now. We didn't have 16. Mm. We had several in the fall, winter, and spring, and and that was it.
0: So you had a lot of uh, influence um, through your family and the sports that you played, obviously baseball for sure. Um, who were some of the coaches that you had during your time here at Gilman who played a huge hand in your passion for baseball and basketball specifically, but just athletics in general?
1: Well, the most memorable was Nick Schloeder for for basketball, and I'm not the only one who would, would say that. He was truly an unforgettable teacher coach who was here for uh, 30, 39 years maybe. And um, he helped change the, he, he was, he prided himself on being a tough guy, and, and he was, um, having grown up in Hoboken, New Jersey. And um, he broadened our perspective, and was a proponent of community service and giving of yourself and treating each other well and with respect. But uh, you played for him. Um, you were going to do it his way, and there was conditioning and discipline involved, and there, was, um, there wasn't there was much back talk, I can promise you. And, and he and, and Mr. Finney um, provided... Um, remarkably uh, talented coaching for football year after year. They were a dynamic team, and um, they gave it their all. And even though I didn't play varsity here, I always admired their teams and uh, had countless friends who played football for them. Uh, Bill Campbell was our varsity baseball coach, and I liked him very much. Um, but again, we weren't terribly talented, and we'd have 25 people watching a varsity baseball game, and there were more than a thousand yards away watching the lacrosse game. So th- there was some competition between uh, the two spring sports, which. Um, uh, resulted in baseball usually coming out on the, the short end. So the the success of the program in recent years has been a quiet source of pride uh, for me. I, I must say.
0: When you think of Mr. Finney, and you've you've talked a little bit about him so far, but I'm just curious if there are particular stories about Mr. Finney that come to your mind um, as. Uh, memorable for you in terms of your interactions with him and um, just kind of the way he was I'm, I'm always curious to hear just kind of anecdotes or stories about about him because he's had such a enormous influence on Gilman and Gilman's history I, I felt
1: uh, enormously blessed that not only was he my faculty advisor for six years how lucky can a guy get I mean uh, he took interest in what you did and and he he knew my father um, which which didn't hurt any uh, they were they were friends as fellow Gilman alumni. Dad was seven years older and um, just his enthusiasm um, I don't remember having him in the classroom, but um, our talks were always helpful and he, he just embraced you and wanted the best for you as a Gilman student in whatever you did and all the tributes that were forthcoming when we lost him were perfectly on target um, he just was the embodiment of the best of the, the school and he wanted you to be the best version of yourself and you could go to him in um, uh, on good days and bad. Uh, one of my memories of the oral history that I did with him was um, seeing the anguish in his face decades later when he told the story of having to um, suspend it was either two or three students who I believe were seniors and one happened to be the son of the president of the board of trustees at that time and he did what he needed to do as the head of the school but he was so uh, feeling so, um, so much pain about uh, the personal side of it, since he was working directly with the father of one of those um, who had to be had to be disciplined. and I don't remember if both were allowed back into the school uh, at some point later or whether one did. I think one may have returned. don't know whether both. but uh, that was a very revealing um, early experience in conducting and oral history to see the interviewee in um, significant pain. Um, Another part of that that I remember was um, asking him to comment on the fact that he and Jim Brown uh, were and may still be the only two-time All-Americans in both football and lacrosse. And I had heard it years before, and it was true. And he just politely declined making any comment about it. He really didn't want to talk about himself in those terms. Hmm. Modest, very, very modest. And he, he just, he was all about the best for this institution and excellence. And hopefully that's what we're striving for. And sometimes the ability to, um, to reach our goal um, is, is out of reach. We, we can't do it, but whether it's in athletics or academics or an extracurricular activity, hopefully there's a desire to excel. Because when we move on from Gilman, um, the competition's going to be more significant in whatever endeavor you, you've got. And I like to ask young returning alums, did Gilman prepare you well? And the next one who says no will be the first.
0: Hmm. That leads me to my next question for you was when you were leaving Gilman um, and going to Dartmouth, how did you know kind of— like in the next stage of your life, kind of what you wanted to do and what experiences, classes, teachers, coaches kind of influenced you to make those, I guess, next-step decisions in terms of a career, what to study, uh, what path to take after you graduated from here?
1: I didn't know. I had no idea. What I knew was that um, Dartmouth had accepted me, and um, the other member of our class— who was accepted uh, decided to go elsewhere. So I'm the only one who headed up uh, to Hanover, New Hampshire. And um, I don't care how well-rounded an early life you think you've had when you're out of your home environment at 18 and you are entering a freshman class of roughly 800 from all over the country and some uh, foreign countries, it's gonna be different. And there's an adjustment period. And <clears throat> Dartmouth uh, was uh, at that point uh, trimester, I think it's year round with the summer term required, which was not in our case. But uh, I, I did well academically, but uh, it got better with each year, my course selection uh, improved. I I remember taking a freshman English course, and I did fine in English. And uh, it was an old school professor at the college, and you had an assigned seat. This is September, fall of 67. And um, the the motto for professor doing was uh, A is for God, B is for me, and C is for my best student. And uh, part of the curriculum for that fall semester was Milton's Paradise Lost, so we had to tackle that. I got a B in the course, and th- that was uh, a huge confidence builder, because you hear things about long entrenched members of the faculty and how they do things, and. It's the college experience with all this freedom, and what do you can do about a social life, and what about an extracurricular activity? I went out for freshman baseball, the only sport I had a chance of making, and there was freshman athletics at that time, and I got cut. And this was uh, the spring of '68, and we'd come back from spring break, and the weather was lousy, and we. Worked out in Leveron Fieldhouse, Monday through Friday, and at the end of, and then there was Saturday morning practice outside. The only outdoor practice before the squad was cut. And the coach uh, said, "When you go in the locker room, uh, those who've made the team will be on on a list uh, that's posted." And for those of you not on it, thank you very much for coming out. Good luck. So I go inside. Now, my dad was captain of his Dartmouth team in the spring of 1940 or summer of 1943. It was wartime. Um, The Marine Corps allowed him to finish his studies before entering, which he did um, that year. and he'd had a wonderful experience. He played ice hockey, was a goalie, did well, and, and uh, loved baseball. So I'm a chip ball field block as far as that sport is, is concerned. But I looked at the list and my name wasn't on it. And I knew at that moment that was the end of my baseball career. I was so upset I came home mm. from New Hampshire for a weekend just to let it sink in. And I went back, and the following year I uh, joined the college radio station. And we don't know these uh, silver linings when they occur, but because I didn't play baseball and went to the radio end and was a sportscaster, uh, I was able to be one of three Dartmouth students who went to Omaha when the college baseball team made the College World Series for the only time in the school's history. And we, uh, we covered three games, and it was very exciting. Won the first and then lost to Florida State and Southern Cal, the two schools that ultimately played a 15-inning final game for the uh, College World Series title in the spring of 1970, and then that fall Dartmouth's football team won 9-0 and was ranked 14th in the country, all schools included. So if I'm playing, I'm not on the microphone. I don't wind up doing all the announcing I did for years thereafter. But when your name's not on the list and you're cut, you're not thinking about that stuff. You're not thinking about what's next. You're taking the shot of the disappointment of not making it.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I'm sure that was a uh, massive disappointment for you. And you came home to Baltimore afterwards. How did you, I guess, make that decision to get into radio, or who who steered you in that way, or was that just something I, that you I tried out even,
1: for? I don't even remember, Jake. <laughs> um, but I'd heard good things. Um, I liked the professionalism of the students who were on the air. It was an AM station, and I listened regularly and I visited the studio and I took a speech class and did fine in that I thought I'm going to give this a try
0: and it worked out well that's awesome Um, so Mac we're getting I guess towards the end here a little bit is there anything else that you came in today that you wanted to touch on or talk a little bit about um, in terms of your experience here at Gilman Dartmouth, and then afterwards um, that, that we haven't gotten to yet?
1: Thanks, Jake. Just um, kind of a trip down memory lane. Um, although the, our class of 67 I wouldn't refer to as a real close class, several members have distinguished themselves um, since graduation and made enormous contributions John schmick, thirty nine years headmaster. Sharon Bristow was assistant to Mr. Finney. I guess he was either assistant or associate headmaster at the end of a very distinguished twenty six years here after Princeton. And let's not forget his wife, Lori, who um, has been a trailblazer for um, for for trainers in this community with well over 30 years of service to Gilman. That's quite a dynamic couple right there. And I don't by any means want to forget Chris Legg who taught English here, I believe in the middle school for more than 30 years, was varsity uh, wrestling coach for a long time. He wrestled after Gilman at Yale. So there are three men Good friends of mine who have, uh, in the course of their careers, combined for, I'll bet, close to a hundred years of service to this school, all from one class. And um, probably as as a as a close, just my eternal gratitude to my parents for making it possible for me to enter Gilman and do so at a very young age. And the, what I always have appreciated was that I had the benefit of a, uh, of a loving uh, mother and father who had a lot of confidence in Gilman and from my sisters, Roland Park Country, across the street. And they turned me over to the Gilman faculty, the teachers, and the coaches, as an extension of my upbringing. So it starts at home, and it ends at home. But the educational part is so important. And I've loved this place from the get-go, and it's it's very special. And even today, at 72-plus and a grandfather, when I get out of my car and walk on the campus i feel good and it is something of a second home for me and to conclude my my career uh, trying to make up a modest contribution uh to the school that has given me so much is uh, very special
0: thank you very much mac um it was an honor having you on today and uh I appreciate your reflections on Gilman and thoughts on how meaningful this place has been for you um, and all of your contributions here and the oral histories that you do. So so thank you for joining me and Cesare today. Chesare, thank you, and um, we'll see you around campus.
1: And, Jake, uh, my thanks to you and Chesare, of course, for um, these minutes. And uh, keep up the good work because the experience you're receiving by conducting all of these is benefiting um, the school, it's benefiting your interviewees, and it's benefiting yourself.
0: Thank you.